This is Infants on Thrones. The philosophies of men mingled with humor. We are the core. After your faith has let you down. Welcome back to Infants on Thrones. I'm Glenn Oslin, and today I'm excited to announce the winners of our recent listener essay contest. And then I'm going to share with you some of our own sort of best of infant listener essay type minisodes from years gone by. These episodes that have fallen through the cracks and are no longer available on iTunes. They're only available on the back catalog on our website and hardly get any listens anymore. Then they're so sad. They just want to be listened to. They just want to be loved. But first, our recent essay winners. Third place and a prize of $50 goes to Alice for her essay, For Then We Saw Through a Hat Darkly, which is episode 489. Congratulations, Alice. Second place and a prize of $100 goes to Christian for his essay, An Open Letter to Mormonism, which is episode 493. Congratulations, Christian. That was a long one. And first place and a prize of $200 goes to Lisa for her essay, A Log on the Fire, which is episode number 491. So I hope to be interviewing each of our winners over the next few weeks. Now, if any of you have any questions for these authors, anything that you'd like to hear them talk about from their essay, uh, you can send an email to infantsonthrones.com, or maybe it's better to just write a comment on the website on their particular episode, and then we'll talk about that during those interviews. And thank you to those of you who support us on Patreon. That money helps keep the podcast alive, of course, and it also provides these cash prizes for the listener essays. I'm really glad that we're able to do this. So thank you for those of you who support us. We'll be doing another essay contest coming up in August. We'll be doing a songwriting contest in July. And if any of you have uh, essays or songs that you would like to submit for that, again, uh, email at infantsonthrones at gmail.com and you'll get entered for those contests. And now... You're going to hear six infant-produced essays, or mini-sodes, that are no longer available on iTunes. The first is called Priesthood, Pornography, and Barry Manilow, and it's one of my personal favorites. I still laugh at this one, and it's based on an actual true experience that I had at church in an elders quorum pornography lesson. Oh my gosh, it was crazy. Then we have one from Tom, where he talks about his complicated relationship with coffee. We have one from Matt, where he compares the ASL ice bucket challenge of old. Remember when that was a big thing a couple of years ago? He compares that to temple worship, a really good essay. And then a mini parody of a BYU commencement speech that Jake put together. Very funny. We have one from Bob where he talked about the music that he listened to that helped him through his faith crisis. And then the last one will be from Randy where he basically comes out of the closet about his former homophobia. So you'll have these essays today. You'll laugh, you'll cry, and then hopefully you'll make one of these things yourself and come be an infant just like the rest of us. Because, you know, deep down, we're all kind of infants where it really counts, aren't we? Right? Kinda? Sorta? Maybe? Eh? I don't know. 
Welcome back to Infants on Thrones. I'm Glenn Ostland, and I'm going to share with you a blog that I wrote uh, back in October 2010. If you search for it, you can find it on the Mormon Expression uh, blog site. This was an experience that I actually had in a priesthood elders quorum. Every once in a while, there is a lesson where they have to be very serious about the terrible problem of pornography. This was probably one of the most entertaining lessons that I ever sat in, and so I wrote a blog about it, and I want to share it with you today. So that's what we're going to do. Hang on. I've been around the world, seen a lot of things that make your chicken curl. Warning, this post contains illicit language and disturbing images, but nothing that hasn't been taught in at least one Elder Scorn lesson on pornography. Continue at your own discretion. Several years ago, I had the Elder's Quorum lesson of a lifetime. Our instructor was a convert of about three years, and he was in the military. Now, I tell you this so that you'll understand why he thought that the shock and awe approach was the best one to take. He also hadn't been fully acculturated into the Mormon culture to understand the subtle and not-so-subtle nuances of what is and is not appropriate to say out loud, or perhaps to even think quietly and keep inside your own head. So, for the sake of everyone's edification, and as a sort of Infants on Thrones public service announcement, I would like to humbly share with you today some recommendations on what is and is not an appropriate way to teach about this filthy and disgusting cancer on society within the hallowed and sometimes annoyingly fuzzy walls of a Mormon meeting house. Appropriate. In today's day and age with the internet, pornography is more pervasive than ever. It is a filthy and disgusting cancer on society. Not appropriate. The internet is a real son of a bitch. If you want to look something up, all you have to do is Google 15-year-old girls covered in semen, and boom, there it is. Appropriate. Viewing pornography can lead to self-abuse. Imagine that you all have a little factory. Not appropriate. All right, come on, guys. Now, don't think for a moment that if you're sitting alone at night looking at porn that you aren't also doing something else. Come on, you all know what I'm talking about. Insert explicit hand gesture here. Appropriate. Oh, okay, perhaps it is all right to use a reverent hand gesture, but only if the gesture is brief and understated and ends within the count of two Mississippi. Not appropriate. But it's not okay if the hand gesture goes on for 30 seconds or longer while you eyeball each and every elder in the room and accompany it with facial expressions or sounds of any kind. <laughs> Appropriate. So come on, brethren, this is a serious topic and far more common than you might think. What do you all think about this? Not appropriate. All right, Brother Oslin, you're sitting there in the back snickering with your arms crossed. You know crossing your arms is an indication of guilt, right? So spill it. Appropriate. Many people have serious problems with pornography. It can ruin relationships and destroy marriages. Not appropriate. You all know that Richard and his wife are divorcing, right? Well, now you know why. Appropriate. Pornographic images and masturbation can severely disrupt the intimacy that binds you and your wife together for time and all eternity. Not appropriate. 
So, you know, when you're choking the chicken all the time, you can actually get to a point where you lose feeling in your penis. Now, this actually happened to me with my first wife, and I could never explain to her why it had happened. I tried to hide it from her, but she could tell there was something wrong. And when I went to the doctor, he said there wasn't anything he could do about it. I, I had just looked at so much porn and had jerked off so much that I lost all the feeling in my penis. And trust me, elders, you don't ever want to lose the feeling in your penis. So I hope you all appreciate this IOT PSA. And if you ever do encounter a lesson like this, also don't approach your friends afterwards and say, Hey guys, we totally need to debrief. So in conclusion, I want to say thank you to this former Elders Quorum instructor for delivering probably the most shocking, entertaining, and memorable Elders Quorum lesson ever. It even beats the Fandango hand puppets lesson from the guy who didn't really prepare any message at all. And finally, after listening to this, I dare any of you listeners to try and get through Barry Manilow's trying to get that feeling again without thinking about this guy's dilemma and snickering. Doctor, my woman is coming back home late today. Go ahead, give it a shot. Could you maybe give me something? If you can do that, you're a bigger person than I am. And delete your browser history, too. Before she sees that I've been up down Trying to get the feeling again All around Trying to get the feeling again The one that made me shiver Made my knees start to All right, how about we just skip to the end? You and me both, buddy. Uh-huh. You go get it, Barry. Yeah. Get it back. Well, they do say it's an addiction. All right, my name's Matt from Infants on Thrones, and I've been nominated for the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge. We seem to be at the tail end of what's become a real cultural meme. A viral challenge that's become a symbol of charity and sacrifice. Or perhaps 
a symbol of groupthink and narcissism. This ALS Ice Bucket Challenge is huge. Everyone's doing it. There are reports that this Ice Bucket Challenge is a huge success, with donations to ALS.org up millions compared to last year. As I've watched video after video of people dumping buckets of cold water over themselves, it's reminded me an awful lot of something I used to do pretty regularly. Attend and serve in the Mormon temple. At least that's what Mormons say they do in the temple, serve. So what does the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge have to do with a Mormon religious ceremony? Well, maybe nothing, but maybe a lot. It's no secret that Mormons view temples as the ultimate symbol of their faith. Attending and participating in the rituals there is the ultimate goal for every member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. LDS kids even sing songs about going there someday. The purpose is to get married or sealed to your spouse, which Mormons believe is a requirement to go to super VIP heaven, as Brother Jake calls it. But they also believe that this sealing allows you and your extended family to be together forever in this super VIP heaven. Mormons believe that without the temple, all family relationships will be severed at death. Now I know that doesn't make any practical sense, but that's the belief, so just go with it. So, if the person is getting these benefits of super VIP heaven and a connection that binds them to their family forever, then why do most Mormons refer to going to the temple as, quote, serving in the temple, end quote? Well, not unlike genealogy, the reason why is not very clear to me. But the reasoning is essentially this. The personal benefits of family connections and receiving the password to get into Super VIP Heaven What's the password? only happens the first times Mormons go through the temple. And Mormons are encouraged to attend the temple regularly, even weekly. And when they go back, they go through as a proxy for someone who's died. So Mormons believe that they really are helping people who have died get into Super VIP Heaven and are also helping them reconnect with their family in the afterlife. I suppose this is a noble goal, and I certainly can't fault people who believe in the literal effect of the temple for feeling that they're actually doing some good for someone who's dead. But even when I was a complete believer, I had a tough time saying that going to the temple was a form of service, and was frustrated when others would. I'd go through the ritual and realize that these were just symbols without any real tangible effect. This frustration only grew when I went through the temple for and on behalf of John Smith. I'm not kidding, John Smith. Now, I'm sure there are real John Smiths out there, but I wondered, which one am I going through for? And how does God know? I mean, the John Smith I went through for needs to be able to get into Super VIP Heaven and needs to be with his family. The answer came either from someone else or from my own mouth. It'll all work out in the end. I then learned that temples didn't have enough names and would reuse names over and over and over again. So the person I was going through for and on behalf of likely had somebody else go through for and on behalf of them a couple times previously. Well, 
Oh, well. If once was good enough, then twice and three times is even better, right? God will work it all out in the end. If that wasn't enough, I then learned that there were people who were paid by the church to come up with names. And they just flat out made them up. Again, oh well, so what? I'm sure I learned something when I went through for that fake person, and God will sort it all out in the end anyway. Soon, even as a believer, I viewed the temple as a complete waste of time. Especially if God would eventually just work things out in the end. I was just moving my hands and doing these rituals to make myself believe that I was actually doing something for someone else. Once I left the church, the temple was still a symbol for me, but it was a different sort of symbol. It was a symbol of the time I wasted when I was a believer. I realized the temple was incredibly inefficient. At one point in the temple, a prayer is offered, and the person saying the prayer holds up a bag, and in the bag is a whole bunch of strips of paper with names on it. Faithful members write the name of a friend or loved one they feel needs help. Of a special prayer. A prayer that might have more effect because it was made in the temple. This is called a prayer roll. The person saying the prayer picks up the bag of names and says something like, We pray for all those whose names are contained here and the names of people written on the prayer rolls of all the temples this day. So I remember thinking, if if they can do that for the prayer, why not do one temple session for all the people who have died? Boom! One big mega proxy to ensure all people will get all the ordinances they need to get the super VIP heaven and to be with their families forever. Or if that wasn't good enough, why not just wait till the millennium? A time I was taught we would be doing temple work. Certainly all the righteous, resurrected people would be able to make short work of all the names of people who needed their work done. I realized I was in office space, and the church is Lumberg, and going to the temple was the equivalent of putting a cover sheet on a TPS report. Just something to keep me and the rest of the members busy. Ooh, yeah, um... I'm going to have to go ahead and sort of disagree with you there. There's no effect, no impact, no service that's being done. It's a futile symbol which only served to make me feel righteous and justified in my self-righteousness. Ooh, yeah. Pretty cynical, I know. I'm sure there are people out there that can talk about the value of symbolism, the value of ritual, and the value of the temple. I mean, heck, I used to always say, well, regardless of whether or not the work I was doing in the temple actually had some effect on somebody, that if I was able to think about a dead person symbolically, hopefully that would cause me to do something to help real people that I interacted with on a daily basis. But I didn't. I think of all the hours spent in the temple, and I realize I would have been better off mowing my elderly neighbor's yard. But I didn't. Because just like most people, I found that participating in a symbol of sacrifice and charity was easier than actually sacrificing or being charitable. You are pathetic and weak. So, what does my temple experience have to do with the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge? Well, like those who attend the temple, I have no doubt that everyone who's done the Ice Bucket Challenge means well. And I'm sure they feel like they've done something. And as I've said earlier, as a result of this viral ice bucket challenge, donations are up for ALS research. 
and I'm noticing a lot more people recently focus more on donating. But too often, I've seen people and still see people challenge others who say, you have to do this or donate. Now, for the people who donate and do the challenge, thanks for the donation. And I'm thanking you because not long ago, my mother-in-law had knee replacement surgery. And after the surgery, her foot didn't really work anymore. The doctors attributed some nerve damage and assured her that she just needed to work on a rehab program. She didn't get better. Her kids assumed that part of the reason was because she wasn't working hard enough to do the exercise she was supposed to do, even though she really was. Soon she got weaker and weaker, and she wasn't able to walk hardly at all, and had a very difficult time getting around her house and, and doing the things she needed to do. She started having breathing issues, and the doctors attributed it to a bout with pneumonia. Eventually, she ended up in the hospital on a breathing machine and unable to walk. It turned out she had ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. And although no one knew it at the time, that's what had caused all her health issues the year before. The ironic thing is that, unlike some diseases, even if the doctors had diagnosed it earlier, there was nothing they could have done. There's no treatment to cure or even slow down this debilitating and deadly disease. And almost with malice, it struck down the mother of the most important person in my life. So I guess I'm glad that people are more aware of this disease than they were at the beginning of the summer. My family's awareness of this disease came as an icy bath to the heart. But being aware of the problem doesn't really do anything to solve the problem unless awareness turns to action. So I'm not doing the ice bucket challenge, but I am nominating everyone who has or who will be nominated to do the ice bucket challenge to participate in the symbol if you want. But don't stop there. Donate something. Or find someone with ALS and help them with something. Because there's probably something they just can't physically do for themselves. And I'm also nominating people who attend the temple. Participate in the ritual. Participate in the symbol. But don't stop there. There's probably somebody in your ward or in your neighborhood that could use a little service. And ALS isn't the only malicious disease out there. My dad and a close friend are currently battling different forms of cancer. Both of them are unlikely to win this battle. And both, my dad in his early 70s and my friend who's barely 35, will be struck down too soon. So I guess I'm also nominating everyone out there to do the Ice Bucket Challenge for cancer. Or better yet, go get and encourage your loved ones to go get a colonoscopy or visit a person who's in the hospital dealing with cancer or what comes with cancer treatments. You know, come to think of it, Parkinson's, diabetes, MS, CMV, and hemophilia are all diseases that affect people I know and love. All of these diseases need awareness, attention, and money. Those people and families living and dying with these diseases all probably need some sort of help. So I guess I'm nominating everyone to do an ice bucket challenge and donate to one of those diseases as well. Also, I mean, if you're willing to be uncomfortable by pouring ice water over your head, although here in Arizona in August, an ice bath is more of a treat than a sacrifice. <laughs> but if you're willing to be uncomfortable with ice, let someone stick you with a needle and donate blood instead of, or at least in addition to, the ice bucket challenge. 
And we can even post ourselves getting the injection and donating blood and put that on the internet or Facebook or Instagram or our blogs or whatever or whatever we're doing and let that go viral. There really are probably an endless list of worthy causes that have a real need and are worthy of attention. So since this has become a bit of a soapbox standing preachy sermon of a minisode, I'll end the way many good Mormon sermons end. I challenge you, my good brothers and sisters of this podcast, and I challenge myself to find those worthy causes that we care about and do something for them that can affect change. Do something that's more than a symbol. Or if you like symbolism, awesome. Do that too. But don't just be a symbol of sacrifice and charity. Be the embodiment of sacrifice and charity. Otherwise, we're all just cold and wet. And I leave you with this in the name of humanism, personal connections, sacrifice, and love. Anyone for the closing prayer? As our commencement speaker for this graduation ceremony, we will now be pleased to hear from Elder Brother M. Jake of the Quorum of the Infants. Elder Jake. Dear graduates, it is wonderful for me to see your smiling faces on this joyous occasion. On this great day of celebration, many of you might be wondering what exactly I am going to speak about. I, after all, claim to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, a watchman on God's tower, communing with the divine to guide his flock. Now, that isn't to say that I speak with God all the time. Don't try and paint me into a corner of incredibly high expectations now. Apostles are just men, imperfect men. But it probably wouldn't be unreasonable for you to expect that I, as an apostle, would be given an ability beyond, or at least equal to, the layperson to discern the issues most deserving of an apostolic voice of warning and counsel. After all, that's what a watchman is for, right? So, with that in mind, it begs the question, what will I address? Will I employ my authority and keys as a voice of God to give insight about something that poses a global threat, like the devastating impacts of human activity on the global environment, or the benefits of being good stewards of the earth? Or speak about the continued presence of global poverty and ways that you can combat it now that you are empowered with education? Or address the turmoil broiling in the Middle East as thousands are slaughtered in the name of religious dogma? Well, it's funny you should ask, because even though all those seem like topics that are incredibly, indeed almost absurdly deserving of attention from somebody purporting to have access to the powers that I purport to have access to, I'm going to go ahead and just decide to ignore all of those in favor of an issue that just so happens to be the source of most of the church's negative PR in the U.S. and the catalyst for many of the resignations of American members in recent years. Namely, the ongoing dispute in U.S. politics and society at large over the ability of two consenting adults of the same gender to enter a civil contract, i.e. gay marriage. Now, ignoring all the quite frankly appalling implications of that decision, in context of the apostolic role I supposedly embody, let's get to the content of my arguments about gay marriage. Since many of your friends may not have yet heard the many logical and divine truths that refute gay marriage, I will enumerate some here so that you can have arrows in your quiver of self-righteous indignation. The first reason against gay marriage is biological. It takes a man and a woman to make a family, and that is a scientific fact. Trust me, I used to be a heart surgeon. 
Now, that particular line of argument might be derailed with the most basic application of critical thought, since, first of all, it's hard for me to argue that marriage is solely for the purpose of procreation when I married my current wife when we were both well beyond the age of fertility. And second of all, there really isn't much biological conflict here anyway, since the people entering gay marriage are, I have been informed, actually gay. So they wouldn't have been entering into a heterosexual marriage and procreating even if gay marriage were legal. But the second argument against gay marriage is even more important, which is because God disapproves of it. And we know that God disapproves of it because in the biblical account of the creation in Genesis, it specifically mentions the union of a heterosexual couple, Adam and Eve, without any mention of the unions between same-sex couples. And sure, taking that account so literally carries massive implications that could undermine my entire argument, such as the fact that the same passage of scripture also mentions a six-day creation period for the earth, a talking snake, and a magical garden where nothing ever died, as well as the fact that applying that same standard of rejecting anything not mentioned in this passage as a legitimate form of marriage, I'm also implying that polygamous unions are forbidden, which is a little awkward for me since, in the eyes of God, I'm technically married to two women at this very moment. But let me appease these criticisms with the following statement. True intimacy, as planned by our Creator, can be experienced only within the sacred bonds of husband and wife because it is enriched by truth and ennobled by the covenants that husband and wife make with each other and with God. So you see, true intimacy can only be experienced between husband and wife because it's true. That might sound like circular logic, but is that such a bad thing? After all, as it says in the scriptures, the ways of the Lord are one eternal round. Ultimately, none of these criticisms matter because we are disciples of Christ, and that means that we'll be persecuted for righteousness' sake. Therefore, if we're doing things that people don't like and they express displeasure for what we do, then that means that we are righteous. And yes, I may be cherry-picking parts of the New Testament, some of which come from Pauline letters that have since been proven forgeries, to back up this idea while ignoring dozens of others that speak strongly against the type of self-righteous evangelism that I'm recommending. But as I said before, I am an apostle, so my cherry-picking is divinely inspired. At the close of this address, let us step back and contemplate for a moment what just happened. Set aside for a moment the content of the speech itself and consider the context. The address I just gave was the keynote speech for an accredited university's graduation commencement ceremony. In other words, this event is in commemoration of your completion of the academic requirements of your respective studies, which signifies your qualification according to the secular standards of higher education in your career field. So, you might wonder, doesn't it seem a bit strange that he chose this specific occasion to give such a theologically and doctrinally pointed speech, devoid of virtually any mention of anything about the benefits of, or responsibilities that come with, higher education? Actually, no, it's not strange at all. The speech and its context embodies what BYU was intended to be, which prospective students sometimes ignore as they ogle the subsidized tuition rates. BYU is first and foremost a retention tool for the church. The low tuition, beautiful campus, and excellent educational resources available here are a construct that allows the church to reinforce the fealty of its members at a point of their lives where they are most likely to fall away. That is the prime directive. Now, some might say that this is somewhat deceptive or Orwellian, but I disagree. After all, the tenets of the honor code are clear, and people are free to choose to attend this university if they want. So, if nothing else, let this oddly placed, us-against-the-world, gay marriage-themed graduation commencement speech be a reminder that when push comes to shove, 
education is this university's secondary priority. In the name of institutional authority, amen. Religion offers no shield for wickedness, for evil. The God in whom I believe does not foster this kind of action. He is a God of mercy. He is a God of peace and reassurance. He is a God of love. I want God to come and take me home. Cause I'm all alone in this crowd. Who are you to me? Who am I supposed to be? Not exactly sure. Where's this going to? Can I follow through? Or just follow you for a while? Does anyone ever get this right? I feel no I'm Bob Caswell, and today you're going to hear my faith crisis set to music. So let me explain. Ever since I can remember, I've had this habit. Bad habit, good habit, I don't really know. Let's just go with habit. I've had this habit of taking songs I really like and repurposing them for the narrative of my life. As if musicians write songs specifically for me. I mean, don't they? Why wouldn't they? Growing up Mormon, everything was pretty conveniently about me anyway, what with living in the last dispensation and being part of a chosen generation and such. So anyway, back to musicians writing music about me. We all do this, right? Repurpose songs for key events in our life? Hopefully it's not just me. I'll spare you the more embarrassing examples and just stick with one major example. Maybe it's still embarrassing. You tell me. You know, sometimes I'm not really sure what to embrace and what to be embarrassed by, so uh, we'll see where this goes. But I'm going to talk about what happened when my habit for repurposing music for life events became best friends with my faith crisis. This happened, not surprisingly, around 2007 when I had my faith crisis. One song I love and I loved before my faith crisis and still love now well after is the song No One Knows by Queens of the Stone Age. Great band. This is a song I can't get enough of. In fact, I'm one of those sing-in-the-car kind of guys. I love to sing along with songs I love, and this one really never grows old. I like to listen to podcasts while driving my commute, but I also like to listen and sing along to music, especially on the freeway. Because otherwise, you know, there's something about stop-and-go traffic that makes you look around and wonder if anyone is watching you rock out by yourself in your car. But I digress. Even if lately I've been thinking, who cares? Why not embrace it? So here goes. Sing along with me if you know the words, and then we'll talk about the lyrics after. Don't worry, this isn't the full song. Or be worried, maybe it's still a problem. I'm just going to give you a taste of riding in a car with Bob for a minute.
did you catch all that? Here it is again, one more time, the non-singing format. We get some rules to follow. That and this, these and those, no one knows. We get these pills to swallow, how they stick in your throat, taste like gold. Oh, what you do to me, no one knows. So to me, this became all about the church being so arbitrary. I couldn't tell what really mattered and what was just silly. It all started to blur. And it did feel like I was starting to swallow pills. And I love the metaphor of golden pills. Because you know, gold, that's awesome, right? It's always the go-to metal for teaching a lesson about something we want. But then a golden pill? Seemingly so awesome at first, until it gets stuck in your throat. And then when you have a taste, you start realizing that maybe swallowing gold pills isn't such a good idea. And this overwhelming feeling comes over you that you can't explain, you're not sure who to talk to. This entity, an organization, a church, it's doing so much to me, but no one knows. No one knows. Now, I won't get into the rest of the verses, but I recommend you check out the whole song. Great stuff and a nice rockin' song, too. There is at least one other song I have to talk about. Bear with me. It actually came out in October 2007, right during the heart of my disaffection. And wow, this song spoke to me on a whole other level. It also ended up being that classic scenario where, you know, you end up hearing the lyrics you want to hear rather than the exact lyrics as they are. Even so, the original lyrics still work just as well, but I want to share my slightly different version. Are you ready? This is Happy Ending by Mika. So if you're not ready for a minute of being in the car with Bob trying out some falsetto, you've been warned, if you weren't already warned enough uh, the first time. This is the way you left me I'm not pretending No hope, no love, no glory No happy ending This is the way that we love Like it's forever Then live the rest of our life But not together Wake up in the morning, stumble on my life Can't get no love without sacrifice If anything should happen, I guess I wish you well mm, A little bit of heaven, but a little bit of hell This is the hardest story that I have ever told no hope of love or glory, happy endings gone forevermore. Love. Feel as if I'm wasted. And I'm wasted every day. So, I've listened to this song over a hundred times and still love it. This is the way you left me. I'm not pretending. No hope, no love, no glory, no happy ending. This is the way that we love, like kids forever, then live the rest of our life, but not together. Wake up in the morning, stumble on my life, can't get no love without sacrifice. If anything should happen, I guess I wish you well. A little bit of heaven, but a little bit of hell. This is the hardest story that I've ever told. No hope, no love, or glory. Happy ending's gone forevermore. I feel as if I'm wasting, and I'm wasting every day. Now, even though I exited the church in 2007, it took me two years before I told anyone in my family. 
I was so scared of what my brothers and sisters would think especially. I honestly thought it would ruin everything. I mean, there is no happy ending now, right? Turning my back on the church? It's giving up on an eternity with my family. And what's the point of even trying to maintain a relationship in this life if doctrinally it's irrelevant and insignificant as compared to the eternities? Why not just remember how we all were as kids? That love was real and without institutional conditions. This really did feel like it was going to be the hardest story I had ever told. And is it me leaving them? Not any more than it is them leaving me, by my account, because they're still subscribing to the institution that provides them all sorts of doctrine that is designed to tell them more about me than I could share about myself in my post-Mormon condition. And I remember thinking, if the eternities are gone now, it sure is easy to live life assuming you're just wasting one day at a time. Luckily, none of that is true. I really am one of the lucky ones. To my family's credit, half of them have fallen away, and the other half have done an amazing job not letting this play out in the nightmarish scenario I had imagined. And life now for me is no waste, because this is likely all there is. I want to embrace this fascinating experience. There's no relying on celestial glory now. And you know, the irony is, for as easy as it is to take an active Mormon's perspective and point out all the cognitive dissonance in a negative light, if you think about it, it's that cognitive dissonance thriving that makes it possible for any active Mormon to have a real relationship with someone like me. The alternative is the black and white scenario of either cutting me off or apostatizing. And rather than giving in to what feels like a dice roll gamble for anyone forced with that choice, I say, let the cognitive dissonance thrive. So before I leave you today, I want to give you a little more of the song that opened this episode. It's another Queens of the Stone Age song. This one is called The Vampire of Time and Memory. I'll spare you the details this time around, or the singing, but rather, just fill them in on your own. Sing to your heart's content. See what this song means to you. But for me, even now, hearing a song released in 2013, wow, musicians are still writing and singing about my faith crisis. Anyone for the closing prayer? no confusion here It is as I feared The illusion that you feel Is real To be vulnerable It's needed most of all If you intend to truly fall Apart You think the worst of all is far behind the This is Randy, and I experience a phenomenon called hypnagogia, where in coming out of sleep or going into sleep, you suffer from hallucinations. 
often you're paralyzed. Sometimes you act out the dreams. Last year for our feared podcast, I shared an experience where I felt like I was attacked by a demon. It was a very powerful experience in my life, and you can go back and listen to it if you want to. A couple of my favorite uh, experiences of this type was uh, one of them was when I was at BYU, and I was asleep in the bottom bunk, and I had a dream that I somehow found myself in a glass casket. As soon as that door was shut in my dream, with all four limbs, I violently launched up on the top bunk, sending my best friend and his bed off its hinges, flying across the room where he woke up midair and landed on the dust below. I actually wish that guy was here to tell the story from his perspective because he is a hilarious guy and a really good storyteller. One of my other favorite experiences of this type to share is when I was newly married and we were visiting my wife's parents. And so we were sleeping in an unfamiliar place, which probably led to my uneasy sleep. And I had a dream that my wife was trying to kill me. I then woke up, but not realizing I was awake and still thinking I was in the dream, grabbed the nearest pillow, put it over my wife's face, attempting to kill her. And she woke up and easily knocked the pillow off and I felt stupid. But it's always fun to tell people at parties, especially after a couple of drinks, that I've actually tried to kill my wife unsuccessfully. But by far, the type of hypnagogic hallucinations that I have experienced in my life involve arachnophobia. I've had three different types of arachnophobia hallucinations. The first and most common type is I'm paralyzed in bed and spiders the size of my fucking hand are descending from the ceiling. When I snap out of the paralysis and actually wake up, I find myself flailing in the air trying to swat away all these gigantic spiders. The second kind is that I have a hallucination that spiders have actually infested the bed. They're everywhere, all over the bed. And when I snap out of that, I find myself grabbing the nearest pillow and just swatting all over the bed. And the third and most rare kind is when I actually get out of bed and chase the spiders along the floor and even at the baseboards. Now, probably a lot of you are thinking, my poor wife, but she's actually kind of gotten used to this shit and doesn't really phase her anymore. It's just part of being married to Randy. And it helps that she's just fucking awesome. So what is it about spiders? Why do they cause me to have all of these ridiculous, fear-induced hallucinations? After all, I don't have any experience in my life, like Jeff Daniels in Arachnophobia, where he says his earliest memory was when he was three years old in his crib and his spider crawls up his leg and he was paralyzed with fear and he couldn't move. I don't have any kind of experience like that, or at least I can't remember one. And I don't have this same kind of heebie-jeebie reaction to any other insects or snakes or any other creepy crawly things. It's just spiders. And intellectually, I'm totally on board with spiders. I know that they're vital to the local ecosystems and to the ecosystem of the world in general. They are the most prolific hunters on the planet. They provide a valuable food source to lots of animals, including especially birds. They're also amazing and diverse. They produce silk for their spider webs that pound for pound is stronger than steel and is even being researched to see if we can find a way to replicate it. And even their venom is being studied in the field of medicine for potential beneficial uses. And lastly, virtually all spider species are harmless to human beings. So why the irrational fear? The more I thought about it, the more it just came down to what I call the ick factor. 
I find spiders icky. The way they move, the way they look, it just sends an uncomfortable chill down my spine, and I just have to resist this urge to smash it as fast as I can. So even though intellectually my rational brain can appreciate spiders and can actually respect spiders and for all they do, but it just can't get the onth page with my emotional part of my brain. Something inside me is disgusted and has a fear of spiders. And the more I thought about it, the more it started to remind me of another kind of phobia that I once had when I was a believer. And that phobia is homophobia. The Book of Mormon, we learned that wickedness never was happiness. Some suppose that they were preset and cannot overcome what they feel are inborn tendencies toward the impure and the unnatural. Not so. Why would our Heavenly Father do that to anyone, anyway? I was taught that homosexuality is an abomination to my God. Homosexual acts were a sin second only to murder. And that the acceptance of homosexuality is what led to Sodom and Gomorrah getting destroyed. Or at least that's what I was taught. After all, that's where the word sodomy came from. And I bought it. And I believed it. So much so that I spent a lot of time, a lot of my own personal time, making phone calls and and knocking on doors, trying to convince people to vote for Prop 22 in California in the year 2000, which was the predecessor to Prop 8 in 2008. But there was a seminal moment in my believing life where I was at USC in dental school, and one of the professors there was flamboyantly gay, and he became my mentor. And this one day in clinic, he kind of cornered me and asked me a question. Everyone knew I was Mormon. There was four of us, me and three other Mormon friends that were always seen together. We always hung out. We were the Mormon boys. And this professor's question wasn't, do Mormons accept homosexuality as an acceptable practice? It was more of a poignant one. He wanted to know if me and my Mormon friends made jokes behind his back or jokes behind closed doors about gay people, making fun of gay people. So I was presented with two choices. I could either lie and save face for the church, because honestly that's what I was thinking about, is I didn't want the church to have a bad name. Or I could tell the truth, because the truth was we had made many jokes about this guy. I chose the former and felt horrible about it. I even told that story of shame in church a couple of times as a lesson of how to be more Christ-like. Now fast forward five or six years to 2008, when Prop 8 came out, and then I had my faith crisis and left the church. And when I left the church, I became fully intellectually converted to the gay rights cause. I had shed all of the intellectual baggage that came with being raised Mormon, and I was able to look at the issue with a more intellectual, rational, and empathetic approach, which then made me feel guilty about my history as a homophobe, 
And I went through a weird phase where I almost felt like the president of the gay fan club. When I'd be on the street and I'd see someone who was obviously gay, I had to fight this urge to go up and hug them and tell them how much I accept them. And I understand now how that's very condescending and patronizing, but that's just how I felt. How I feel now can uh, be represented very succinctly and hilariously by my favorite comedian, Louis C.K. I never understood people uh, uh, judging people for the way they have sex. So some people get angry at homosexuals just for being gay. They get mad at them. Arr! I never really understood that, you know, like, I, because they're just having sex with each other. It's like, like, I can understand if gay people were just running out in the streets, just fucking people in the ass willy-nilly, just like a pestilence, like, without asking, you know? Like you're at the ATM. Hey, what the fuck? Jesus! But there was something that was still lingering, still bothering me. I felt like that if I was intellectually on the same page as the gay rights movement, then I wouldn't have a problem watching a normal gay movie with the same kind of amorous scenes that I'm totally comfortable with in a heterosexual way. So shortly after my faith crisis, I found myself surfing the channels on DirecTV, and I came across a gay channel called Logo, L-O-G-O. When I turned it to that channel, there was a, just a typical two guys on a first date scene. They started out talking awkwardly at the doorstep of the date. Then one of them invited the other in. Then one thing led to another. They started making out and ripping each other's clothes off. And I found myself changing the channel in disgust. And once again, I felt that icky factor settling in. And I found this bothersome. I maybe feel like a hypocrite. I couldn't get my emotional brain to get on the same page as my rational brain. And just like with spiders, I could see that there was no reason to fear homosexuals or homosexuality. Just like with spiders, I could see only benefits. Not just for the gay people themselves, but for their families. And preventing all that unnecessary suffering when a gay child comes out of the closet. And I think society as a whole would only benefit by the acceptance of homosexuality. So why did I still feel icky? But then about a year later, something important happened. My wife and I started to watch a TV show that had long been canceled on Netflix called Six Feet Under. Those of you who are Dexter fans will know who Michael C. Hall is. In this one, he doesn't play a tough serial killer. He plays a timid homosexual mortician. And his boyfriend is named Keith the Cop. Well, the first couple of seasons, I found myself grinning and bearing the homosexual scenes that involved making out or having sex. And it was just because the show was just so damn good. But then something happened to me by the fifth season. When I'd see a scene like this... You can give a fuck for once in your life about somebody besides yourself! Where David and Keith get into a normal argument that any heterosexual couple would get into, and then have makeup sex... Instead of turning away in disgust or, or at least cringing, I found myself saying, aww. And it was during that time of watching that show that my brain was purged of the ick factor. I no longer found public displays of affection or even passionate love scenes between two gay men as icky. My emotional brain had finally gotten on to the same page as my rational brain, and I felt great. I no longer felt like a hypocrite. 
And I think this icky factor is, is a pretty common thing amongst heterosexuals, especially those that are sheltered. And I think it's what makes religious leaders, and let's face it, the only significant opposition to equal rights for gays is religion. It makes it an easy sell for religious leaders to get up in front of their congregations and condemn homosexuality. We teach a standard of moral conduct that will protect us from Satan's many substitute counterfeits for marriage. Because, you know, the congregation already feels icky about it anyway. So it's a pretty easy sell. And my hope is that someday homosexuality will become so mainstream and so common and so accepted that gay couples will feel safe and comfortable walking down the street, showing the same kinds of public displays of affection that we heterosexuals take for granted. I like spiders, I like worms. They don't sting and they don't spread germs. Worms have no legs, spiders have eight. I think spiders and worms are great. I also dream of a day where gay marriage will be legal in all 50 states. A day where gay teenagers don't see suicide as an alternative to coming out to their parents. And the admirable campaign, It Gets Better, will become obsolete because it will be no longer necessary. And shows like Will and Grace and Modern Family have made major inroads in this direction. And I think we're going to get to this place eventually. But that it be sooner rather than later is my humble prayer in the name of logic, reason, empathy, and all that is good. Ramen. What we once saw we had we didn't. And what we have now will never be that way again. So we call upon the offer to explain. My name's Tom Perry and I appreciate you listening. Today's episode originally was intended to be a mini-sode, but it didn't quite work out that way. Instead, it turned into kind of a story, oh, I don't know, like a story time with Tom podcast. So I hope you'll humor me with the different direction that this goes. One of the most distinguishable moral codes a Mormon has is what's called the Word of Wisdom. And for those of you that don't know, the Word of Wisdom is a system of values and rules which consists of not drinking alcohol, using tobacco, drinking coffee, tea, caffeinated soda, well, depending on who you ask, of course, eating meat sparingly, yada, 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 so that you can find wisdom and great treasures. Even hidden treasures are... Sorry about that. Obviously, the two biggies in the Word of Wisdom is tobacco and alcohol. All too often, they end up getting the spotlight. But for the sake of this story, I want to focus on tobacco and alcohol sidekick, the hot drink. According to LDS.org, Latter-day Prophets have taught that the term, quote, hot drinks, as written in D&C 89, plainly refers to tea and coffee. I've done some additional digging into what exactly is defined in this area because just using the term coffee and tea is quite broad. Decaf coffee can be seen as allowable depending on your local church leader, of course. And the church has defined that it is only the black and green teas that are the forbidden teas. So, the emphasis does appear to be on the caffeine ingredient, but I don't necessarily want to get bogged down on the slippery slope that this causes, but 
I do want to acknowledge the problematic areas that are created from this vague stance that the church uses. One of the side effects of clearly not stating which caffeine is good or not causes certain problems, as you can imagine. For example, they do allow church members to hold a temple recommend if they drink caffeinated soda, but they don't allow caffeinated soda to be sold on BYU campus and at the Missionary Training Center. So what exactly are they trying to say here? And yes, as you can imagine, this has caused some controversy. ...to a caffeine controversy at BYU. Soda containing caffeine was accidentally placed in vending machines on the caffeine-free campus. ABC4 Utah's Kim Johnson is in Provo with what students are saying about the slip-up. The caffeinated Cokes have since been removed from the vending machines. Now you can only find the caffeine-free kind. But the caffeine buzz is still going strong on campus. Caffeine, something typically never seen on the Brigham Young University campus, showed up Tuesday in vending machines in the Brim Hall building. A student snapped this picture and put it on Facebook. After word spread, another even tweeting people were literally running to the machine. In an email, a spokesperson for BYU tells ABC4, Coke mistakenly included a limited number of caffeinated Coke Zeros in our order, which no one caught while the vending machines were being stocked. It was simply a mistake. Our purchasing decisions have not changed. I think that it's an honest mistake, and really, the truth is, like, it's just a couple cans of, like, caffeinated Coke. It shouldn't be that big of a deal. BYU doesn't offer caffeinated beverages on campus even after the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints clarified their stance on caffeine this year, saying it's not against church standards. General authorities have clarified their policy, saying that uh, caffeinated beverages were never not allowed, were never disallowed. Um, I think it should be up to the individuals. A demand for caffeine on campus has grown on Facebook. Since it's formed, this BYU for Caffeine page now has almost 2,500 likes. While students we talked with tell us they don't drink caffeine, it should be available for those who want it. Caffeine, it's not drugs. I mean, caffeine is a drug, but it's not like it's cocaine or something like that. So there you have it. Out of the, out of the mouth of a BYU student. It's a drug, but it's not like it's cocaine. <laughs> So until the church comes forward with a clear rule on sodas and energy drinks, many rebellious members will continue to drink their caffeinated sodas, even if they need to smuggle them onto campus. So about five years ago, I had my very own crisis of faith. I've been navigating these troubled waters of negotiation with my wife and family since then. It hasn't been easy to balance a new life of being an unbeliever, all the while still being supportive to my wife and family. And it certainly has had its ups and downs for sure, but I'm in a relatively stable and happy place right now. My wife and I have found multiple ways to negotiate our marriage since my new position in relation to the church, and that has helped out a lot. One way we negotiate is that she allows me to stay home on occasion, and in return, yeah, I'm cool with attending once in a while. One added benefit of this is that we found more and more ways of respecting each other and accepting each other's own journeys. I'm proud to say that my entire life growing up in the church, I've never tasted alcohol and have been very faithful at keeping my end of the bargain when it comes to keeping the word of wisdom. 
But now that I no longer believe in the absolute truth claims of the church, I've been hankering for trying a few things on that previously banned list. The only real thing on that list that I've always wanted to try is that temptress. The hot drink, not tea. Nobody really cares about that. I'm talking about coffee. My grandfather used to drink coffee, and I've spent plenty of time around that smell of coffee. You know you've smelled it. Not only has this divinely created aroma found a way into my heart in an early age, but truth be told, I slowly began to develop a crush on coffee. I would even go into the candy section of the grocery store and purchase coffee-flavored candy or even coffee-flavored ice cream. You can even ask my wife. She can vouch for that, right? Oh, do you remember the time you gave here, honey, here, try this. This is my favorite candy in the world. Here, try this. Candy. The coffee nips. Oh, yeah, here, they're try great. This, try this. Have you, try, you tried it? Oh, yeah. It's awesome, right? It went right into the trash can. It's, it's awesome. Awful. I don't know what's wrong with your taste buds. That's great. You know, there are so many people out there that just look at coffee as just a simple means to an end. Like it's just something to pass the time, something that gives them a slight kick that helps them through the day. Most don't even give coffee its rightful due. They order it and then they don't even give a slight minute to really appreciate what is exactly in that cup. I've seen people go into coffee shops, order coffee, and then sit and then do something else, like write their million-dollar award-winning screenplay or enter into some light-hearted conversation that's completely unrelated to coffee with someone. It's like the coffee doesn't even exist. They completely ignore the coffee. So you're probably thinking, how obsessed with coffee was I really? Well, funny you should ask, because... My wife addresses that a little okay, bit. Okay, well, how about this? For years, the whole time we've been married, you have an obsession with coffee. The smell, the taste. Yes, I have. And uh, and why don't you? Have you smelled it? It's amazing. <laughs> it's awful. So now, as you can see, I find myself in a very precarious situation. I no longer believe in the truthfulness of these word of wisdom rules. So does this mean what I think it means? Does it mean that I could possibly try coffee for the first time? Yeah, I think I can. So I slowly began to entertain the idea of giving it an honest go and started to build up my confidence to finally approach this longtime crush of mine and ask her out for the very first time. So I began to outline my plan of attack. In my mind, I began to design my initial approach. I would target any local coffee shop or maybe even a Starbucks. And of course, I would have enough cash on me, you know, to eliminate any possible paper trail. Put on a black hoodie. Most coffee-drinking goths wear hoodies, so essentially it'll be my coffee-drinking camouflage, and I'll blend right in, right? I just need to balance out my disguise enough that I don't look like a damn bank robber. No need to draw any more negative tension than's needed. So I began wondering what exactly was the first coffee I was going to order. Well, that was obvious to me. A black coffee, of course. I've seen enough movies and TV, and I've known enough people that drink coffee to know that any real man orders black coffee. I used to hate black coffee. But let's face it, black coffee is manly. You think Clint Eastwood ever ordered a cream and two sugars? Of course not. Do you know why? Well, because Clint Eastwood was a man. None of that sugary creamer bullshit. The stuff that puts hair on your chest. 
and I was a real man. I certainly didn't need to sugarcoat a real man's drink. So shortly after I ordered my first cup, I would need to find a table in the back corner of the cafe and enjoy her all to myself. Just me and her. Me enjoying her warmth, holding her close. Becoming intoxicated on her delicious aroma. And all the while trying to control myself enough that I don't act prematurely and end up getting burned. Literally. Well, as you can probably predict, this fantasy of mine ended up as most fantasies do. As just a fantasy. There were plenty of times that my fantasy would become borderline obsessive, but I grew up Mormon. I knew how to handle these kinds of things. I'd just turn it off. You know, like a light switch. Turn it off like a light switch. Just go click. It's a cool little Mormon trick. I just never pulled the trigger and let her into my life. Believe me, each and every time I was in a diner or cafe or even a gas station during the morning hours, that amazing smell would slap me directly in the face and my entire body would begin to swoon. But I held strong. I'm not exactly sure why, but I think it was either a combination of fear, self-doubt, or maybe the thought that I would somehow end up disappointing my wife that prevented me from carrying out the deed. But it wasn't long before something happened that changed my life forever. Something so unexpected. Something that no one could have predicted. As I said before, my wife still attends and believes in certain aspects of the church. So you can imagine my surprise when my wife bought me a coffee maker. Yeah, you heard me. My wife bought her unbelieving spouse a coffee maker on her own. You know, the ones the apostates have in their homes as a non-believing trophy. Now, I had my very own apostate trophy in my own home. So you might be asking, why exactly did she do this? And I was asking myself the same things. So I had to ask her. Okay, babe. Hey, honey. So why don't you uh, go over again why it is that you decided that you wanted to uh, buy your husband a coffee maker. <laughs> why well, I bought my husband a coffee maker. Well, because you're the, you're the believer, right? You're the one that goes to church, still puts up with the nursery kids. You have this uh, apostate, disgruntled, very obnoxious husband. So you were essentially ensuring your husband to not get a temple recommend. You feel good about yourself? <laughs> I do. <laughs> okay, so why? Why? Because I'm sure a lot of people are wondering, you know, you're supposed to pull me back, right? Every member of missionary, you're not doing that. You're you're letting him fall even farther by into the depths of apostasy by letting him drink coffee. <laughs> I mean, that's so heathenistic of you. Well, you know, <laughs> what am I supposed to say? I love him and want him to be able to be himself. Did you guys hear that? She just wants me to be myself. Damn, I love that woman. Do you think this is one of those things where you're like, oh, I'll, just, I'll let him try this. He's wanted to try it forever. He, instead of uh, me cheating on you with coffee, you decided to just bring her into the house? <laughs> Why not? I'll just help you right along with it. All right. 
So you can imagine that my mind began to spin like crazy. I now had the full support of my amazing loving wife to overcome my virginity of coffee. I wouldn't have to do this all on my own. So it was the very next day that she took me shopping for coffee for the very first time. We looked at all the different options. I couldn't believe how many different brands and flavors there were. Even in Utah County, there really is a large selection of coffee. Flavors, sugars, creamers, all kinds of different blends, additives. They even have whole coffee beans that you can grind at home. Did you hear me? Whole coffee beans. You can grind your own coffee beans at home. Holy balls. I kid you not. I couldn't believe it either. So we picked up a large variety of different brands and blends to give me the proper deflowering. So it was late one evening after we put the kids to bed that we decided to give it a go. So after we carefully placed everything in their new rightful urn place in the kitchen, she came over and sat next to me. She then began to ask me how I wanted my first cup. I tried to meet her gaze, but I just couldn't. So I looked at the floor, and I mumbled softly, Black? She said, moving in a little bit closer, What, what was that? I took a deep breath, straightened up my back, you know, like a real man, puffed out my chest, looked her straight in the eye, and said louder than I should have, Black! My wife had worked at a convenience store and in fast food in her teens. So she knew her way around a coffee maker. So she stood up and said with a very evil smile on her face, Coming right up. We decided to forego any flavored blends because I felt like this would completely distract from my enjoyment of the true unfiltered raw flavor that has accompanied that incredibly intoxicating smell all these years. So I sat at the table very nervous, palms beginning to sweat, my right leg slightly beginning to bounce, and I carefully listened to the noises of the coffee making process the collecting and pouring of the grinds into the filter. The sound of the water slowly being heated. And then that crackling, squishing sound of the water mixing and beginning to fill the coffee pot. could begin to see the steam slowly push out of the coffee pot as the coffee began to enter in. I started to see small glimpses of steam escape from the coffee pot. I kid you not. It looked like little white angels with wings dissipating into thin air. I actually wanted to write my name on the side of the pot with my finger into the condensation, but I showed self-control... So my wife grabbed a recently cleaned mug and lovingly began to pour the black gold into the cup. I grabbed the mug within seconds and I immediately felt how hot the cup was in my hand and began to panic as I quickly sat it back down on the table trying not to spill it. That's why coffee mugs have those little handles on the side. I get it now. I didn't see the face of Lucifer in the blackness inside the mug as I originally thought, which was a relief. At first, I just stared at the black surface, moving my head close so I could take it all in. 
I closed my eyes, took a deep breath as deeply as a pot smoker would. And I began to feel a bit lightheaded and let out a breath. Oh man, that smell. I slowly began to nod my head. Yeah, it was time. So I placed my finger inside the designated hole on the side of the mug, using my thumb for support. I got this, I thought. I slowly brought it up to my lips, lightly blowing on the surface, and took my first sip. I can actually feel the intensity of my wife's glare. She quickly says to me, So, what do you think? I asked her if the coffee maker was working properly. She said it was working perfectly. Then I asked her if she might not be remembering how to work a coffee maker. You know, it had been several years since she's used one. Of course I remember how to use a coffee maker, she said, very offended. Well, one thing was for sure. Something was wrong. Really, really wrong. Maybe it's the brand of coffee we used, I said out loud. She reminded me that we began with a very high-quality brand and once again reminded me that, yes, she followed the directions perfectly and that everything was working properly. So with raised eyebrows and a slight frown, I took yet another sip. Yeah, this shit was absolutely disgusting. It wasn't that long ago that I was very sick and I was drinking Dayquil for like three or four days in a row. And I remember thinking that I would have preferred to take a long pull from the Dayquil bottle than to have to drink any more of this bitter-tasting dirt. We brewed several other brands and flavors that we had purchased and tweaked with the mixture all to no avail. No matter what we tried, it always ended up with that overwhelming bitter dirt taste. There was just no getting around it. Coffee tastes like shit. So where did this leave me? Now I find myself with what could be considered a, I don't know, a 72-hour kit of nothing but coffee. And this unresolved need to find a way to enjoy coffee. How exactly was I supposed to keep my apostate credibility if I, if I couldn't stomach coffee? Besides, I needed to date her a little bit longer. You know, to really get to know her first before I completely decided to separate and dump her. So yeah, I took all this as a direct challenge. And if you know me, I'm not the kind of guy who likes to back down from a challenge. So now what? I now own my very own coffee maker and all this ground coffee. I could actually feel my apostate trophy taunting me from the kitchen countertop. Each and every time I saw someone happily drinking coffee out on the street, I felt like a coward. I was in a corner. I needed to find a way to make it work, even if it was just temporarily, just to get rid of this newly acquired stash. I needed to find something that could help me ease me into the pearly gates of blackness. So yeah, I conceded to get some creamers and to try some sweeteners. I know, even now, I'm instinctively reaching back into my wallet to remove my man card. I know what you're thinking. What a wuss. And you know what? You might be right, but hey... I refused to go down without a fight. I was going to find a way to enjoy coffee. 
I've come way too far to wuss out now. That being said, I, I gotta be honest. This has been a very difficult thing to accept. The truth was out. This little seductive temptress was nothing but aroma and had nothing else to offer. So for those of you that haven't tried coffee yet, uh, I hate to be the one to tell you this, but coffee doesn't taste good. And I had to learn it the hard way. You're immediately pulled in with that aroma. And you take that first eager taste and you quickly realize you've been deceived. So do you remember when I when we tried at the very beginning to go black? Oh, that was awesome. Because I felt like if I'm going to be a real man, because yes, I want my wife... Hair, I want, and hair on my chest. That's and... right. No, but to the black coffee thing, because I remember when I was telling you about it, and then I wanted to drink black. And you said, okay, and, and you brewed up that first cup, and it was god-awful. It just tasted like crap. I remember one of my first thoughts was, this is worse than drinking a warm glass of NyQuil <laughs> or DayQuil you know that stuff because it, it seemed like it was just a month or so ago that I was drinking that DayQuil because I had a head cold or something and and how awful that was and every time I drink it I'd have to you know, take I'd a l- juice chaser <laughs> <laughs> well I mean I've never shot I'm a ne- NyQuil with a with yeah it's a like I was chaser. drinking shots or something <laughs> and I had to drink some and then I had to wash it down with a juice or a water or something like that because it tasted so bad but when I drank this coffee, that's what it was like. It was rough, man. It was rough. And I remember how bad you were laughing at me. Oh, I laughed so hard. I even had to share it with a friend of mine who drinks coffee. I was like, Oh, that's so, right. Uh, so uh, our how, neighbor how do you, like, how do you, how do you uh, choke your coffee down? She's like, Sugar and cream is the only way. Other than that, if you don't, you it's ever nasty. Invite her, did you ever invite her over? I took her a strong drink when she was getting ready to pack up. Remember oh, that? I, said, I don't. I want to bring you a strong drink, and the strongest drink I could find in the house was, like, was one's coffee and creamer. So did you make her a cup and brought <laughs> it, over it over to her? Oh, yeah, cool. That was funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, now you're uh, you're inviting two people into sin. Uh, Yeah. <laughs> I remember how impressed or flattered I was that you did that for me. I wasn't expecting it. You know that. Right. Flattered that I... I was very flattered that you did that for me. In my opinion, drinking a cup of coffee or letting you try a cup of coffee basically is something that's been in your background of wanting to do for a long time. Um, Don't see any harm in it. So you don't see any harm in it? I don't see any harm in it. Even if even if the church sort of does, Not yeah, sort of, because it becomes that slippery slope where it's saying, "Well, you can drink caffeinated soda, but lay off your caffeinated coffee." So you really don't even subscribe to the church's rules on it, right? No, no, I guess not. So I... if the bishop comes to you and says, "Sister Perry," <laughs> yes, how the bishop possibly... says, "Do you drink? Do you drink hot drinks?" I'm like, "Yes, I drink my herbal tea." Ooh. Okay, but, but what, that, no, that but actually what if turns said, a lot of what if people says, off. So. Well, what if he says, uh, do you drink coffee? And now that you've tried the dirt water, because <laughs> <laughs> that's what you said it tastes like. Dirt water. What if he says, have you ever, have you ever uh, tried coffee? I can say, yep. And then, and then what if he says, shame on you. You don't get a recommend. Or... Um, what if he puts you on probation or 
What if he puts you in a church court? For taking a sip of something to see what it tastes like? Shame on him. I want to see what it tastes like. What was so exciting about it? Okay. Stuff's nasty. So we went out and purchased some peppermint mocha liquid creamer. I like peppermint. I don't love it, but I like it. So we decided to start over from the beginning. I began by thoroughly cleaning all the equipment that were involved in the previous crime scene. We also purchased some expensive purified water because some say that makes a huge difference and got ready to give it another go. So take two. My wife measured out the proper mix, placed it in the filter, poured in the proper amount of filtered water, and I washed over her shoulder with doubts immediately clouding my mind. It's over, Tom. It's just never going to happen. Coffee beat you, bro. Coffee won, Tom nothing. So as a boxer who gets a chance at a rematch from a previous defeat, I grab this cup with renewed vigor. And as an NBA athlete who tells himself at the foul line, I can do this. I looked into this mug, and what was once black was now this light brown, hot chocolate imitating bullshit. Who cares? Take that thought right out of your mind, Tom. Focus on the end game. So I closed my eyes with full determination, and without hesitation, I took that dreaded sip. My clinched eyes that were forced closed were quickly beginning to open in astonishment. Is this the same coffee? No way, can't be. Uh, this certainly isn't great, but holy hell, I think I can take another sip without nausea setting in. I looked at my eager wife and said, I think we did it. I think we found a coffee I can drink. And we embraced as if I'd won the biggest football game of my career. So yeah, while I did make some slight concessions to eventually find a way to drink coffee, The cool part is, I did it with the help of my wonderful wife. And one thing that actually brings a lot of peace to my heart is knowing that I'm not alone in this. Can you guess who else went through a similar struggle with coffee? Actor and comedian Jerry Seinfeld. We were broadcasting our stories across Morning Edition's Coffee Week when we got a note. Jerry Seinfeld was listening with interest, understandably so since he launched a web program last summer called Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. And that was really all the excuse we needed to invite Mr. Seinfeld into our New York bureau. He arrived for our chat with a cup of coffee in hand, which he says he would never have done years earlier. Turns out all those years he spent on the show Seinfeld, sitting with Elaine, George, and Kramer at Monk's Cafe, he never touched his coffee. I never liked it, and I didn't understand it. And I used to do a lot of stuff in my stand-up set in the 80s and 90s about how I don't get coffee. I don't understand why everyone's so obsessed with this drink. Mm -hmm. And people say, well, I need it because when I wake up, I feel groggy. And I say, well, you just got up. (laughs) It's okay. Maybe if you give it a a little time, (laughs) it'll change. So that was my my old attitude about coffee. And then something happened about five years ago. I've been, uh, I started touring a lot and we would have these great big fun breakfast in the hotel and it just seemed to go really well with the french toast okay and then i got married and i had a family and my entire day was not free for social interaction right and eating is annoying difficult to arrange hard to choose places 
and meeting someone for coffee suddenly seemed like a wonderful, compact, accessible, and portable social interaction. Mm -hmm. It's just something to do. My, my theory is 98% of all human endeavor is killing time. <laughs> and this is a way to do it. And yeah, you're so, this is a great way to do and it. And you're so right. If you called up someone and said, let's just meet on a street corner and chat for 20 minutes, that doesn't seem to make any sense. But doesn't let's... Make, exactly. Now you've got... doesn't make sense. And, and, and it's awkward. That's like, you know, these comedians that don't work with the microphone. You know, they have like a clip-on thing or something. It's uncomfortable for the audience. They want to see you with something in your hand. It's more... Relaxing. And it aids conversation because you are working with your hands. You have props. You can look away from the other person when you need to think for a moment because right. you pretend to focus on the cream. There right. are things you can do. Yeah. I do a little thing about the way people shake the sweetener packet. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, like they're all excited. Like, I can't wait to hear this whole story. They, I, I want to get all the granules down to one end. I love all these uh, rituals. I don't, I don't even really know. I just learned about a black eye yesterday. Do what? you know what a black eye is? No idea. A black eye is uh, two shots of espresso. Red eye is one shot. Black eye is two shots. Okay. It's very. Here, here's the secret to really being a great coffee enjoyer. You want the sophistication of the snob without the pretension of the snob. You want to know what's going on, but don't be a fuss budget about it. You know what I mean? Great advice for almost every facet of life. Right. Why do you think it is that coffee is so central to our culture, that there's a coffee shop on every corner if you're in a city, that it's just everywhere, that people offer it to you wherever you go? Mm, that's, that is the question. And, and I think the answer is we all need a little help, and the coffee's a little help with everything, social, energy, don't know what to do next, don't know how to start my day, don't know how to get through this afternoon. We want to do a lot of stuff. We're not in great shape. We didn't get a good night's sleep. We're a little depressed. Coffee solves all these problems in one delightful little cup. Here's another fun clip that I think complements the first one is where Jerry Seinfeld talks to Jay Leno about why drinking coffee can be so important for us just socially. First time, you don't drink coffee. No, I've never, never had coffee in my life. Why? I don't like hot liquid. You know that. I've never had... No, I don't know that. I don't like hot liquid, hot... If it doesn't have ice in it, I don't drink it. But you're He's fascinated. He's so weird, this guy. I am not weird. It's amazing that this person has been accepted by America. Yeah. I don't drink coffee. I don't drink coffee. I, I've never had... Uh, I've never gotten high. I've never had alcohol. I don't drink alcohol. You coffee. could be the Pope. I could be the Pope. I really, you know, I would be a good Pope. I would be a good Pope. Thank you. Now, I, I, want, I want to understand your fascination with coffee. Why? What is it you find fascinating? Well, um, people talk about coffee differently than everything else. People don't drink coffee. They have coffee. Okay. They say, I'm having my coffee. May I have my coffee? Right. And have is a word that you use when you're talking about important things. Okay. You have sex. You have surgery. Right. You have second thoughts. Yeah. About having sex while you're having surgery. That makes sense. People say, how do you take your coffee? You yeah. take it. Take is another yeah. big word. Yeah. You, if you, you, you take sides, take advantage. If you're a sniper, you have the shot, take them out. I see. <laughs> well, how about other beverages? Would you ever do... No. Ginger just, ale? 
No, because coffee gets people sippy and chatty, and they like to take their sweetener packets and shake them, you know. <laughs> and, and, do that, yeah. and they go, oh, I want to hear this whole story. <laughs> you know? Now, I know that many of you out there that have transitioned out of Mormonism have jumped right into coffee with no resistance at all. Well, I take my hat off to those of you that were able to pull this off. But for those of you that have struggled or maybe even currently struggling with her blackness, dude, I totally feel your pain. And listen, I certainly don't want this podcast to sound like I'm endorsing coffee. Not at all. It certainly isn't for everyone. And there's an argument to be had that coffee isn't for me either. My experience with trying coffee has had its own parallels with my journey leaving the church. At one point during my crisis, I believed that leaving the church would bring my heart and soul that long-awaited peace that I'd been longing for. Because I'd been doing all those mental gymnastics required to stay in the church, all the while enduring incredible dissonance as a form of resistance to the inevitable unbelief status that long awaited me. And I thought, once I fully accepted not believing, that I would surely feel better, right? Well, not exactly. That smell, that smell of fully accepting my unbelief was indeed intoxicating. So to accept the unbelief had to mirror that smell, right? Not at all. Leaving has had many, many difficult challenges. I'm now forced to accept a level of uncertainty that I'm really uncomfortable with. It is not cool. Very, very bitter. Raw and unnerving. But I gotta tell you, with time, some really great friends, an amazing wife and family... And all that followed up with regular doses of fun and humor as my own forms of creamer and sweeteners. Leaving doesn't taste quite as bitter as it did when I first started. Anyone for the closing prayer? You've been listening to... If and Stamp If and Stamp If and Stamp If and Stamp Say please subscribe to us. Please subscribe to us. On iTunes. And iTunes. And give us feedback. And give us feedback. We like five stars. We like five stars. And go to Infants on Thrones. And go to Infants on Thrones. Infants on Thrones. Yes! Dot com. Dot com. That's our website. Please and find us. Because this is me and Daddy speaking. Please listen to us. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Infants on Thrones. Infants on Thrones.